Hey, well, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm going to invite you, if you are able to stand to your feet, we're going to read the scripture together. We're in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 27. We're going to read the first six verses. I'm going to read 18, 20, and 22. And I'd like you to read 19, 21, and 23. This is the word of the Lord beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For ever since the world was created, people have, been, have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools. And Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. And so open the eyes of our understanding and bless us as we go through the scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message is this. Is God like mad at me? Is God mad at me? And by way of introduction, I want to say this. I want to say this. Uh, chapters later, chapter 12 of Romans, it says, don't be conformed to the world, but be renewed, but uh, let your mind be renewed, the renewing of your mind there. When it says this, it don't be conformed to the world, it literally means this. Don't allow yourself to be squeezed into cultural molds, how to think and how to act. Don't allow yourself to be squeezed. And how timely is that in light of the times in which we live? I really believe it's going to take a lot of work if you're not going to be conformed. I feel the pressure that we're facing now is unprecedented in culture to conform to the ways that we're, uh, uh, the narrative out there, the propaganda that is out there. So it says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, your mind on a regular basis needs to be renewed to what God has said. And so I recognize that today I'm going to talk about some truth that is, is very counter-cultural, it's very... Uh, unpolitical. It is the thing that uh, you don't hear out there in the narrative. You don't hear out there at all, really, anymore. And so it's unique, but this is the Word of God. And so what we get to do today is we get to hear the very voice of God through the Word of God. So I'm going to begin here in verse 18, and it says this. It says, it's basically asking the question, what does it look like when somebody doesn't walk with God? If somebody's not interested, like, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. What does that look like? And basically, it's telling that person's story on what for some people is the ultimate, can be, in some situations, the end of the story. So he says this, but God shows his wrath or his anger from heaven against all sinful people. Some of your Bibles say uh, righteous or unrighteous, but it says in another translation, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth, who suppress the truth. And so pretty strong words there, friends. The straightforward, sobering truth. Paul doesn't like wait to chapter 16 and kind of tuck it in at the end so maybe nobody's going to see it here. But no, he just punches it right out, right at the beginning of the story that he wants us to know. And he's telling us what nobody else wants to talk about these days here. Like, can we just pretend that it's, that it's not there? But this is one of the mega themes in the Bible. So I can't back off one of the mega themes in the Bible, and that's talking about that God actually does get angry, 
that God does have wrath. So this is a mega theme in the Bible. So Paul doesn't hold back, though. He's not holding back this, like, in-your-face, sobering news, very bold, even though culturally today it's, like, very unpalatable. But he doesn't tone down. He doesn't back off the sober reality. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it or make it more uh, uh, palatable for us. And so he begins his case for Christianity right here saying, look, here's the reality and uh, that God is a God that, is, that has wrath and experiences anger. And he doesn't begin by saying, hey, though you need the gospel so you can have a more successful life. Or you need the gospel so you can have a better marriage. Or you need the gospel so you can find the right spouse or so you won't be lonely or you won't feel insecure. No, he cuts through all of that and says, look, here's why you need the gospel. You need the gospel because God is going to show his anger from heaven and God is going to express his wrath. And so, friends, uh, you may be wanting to push back and you're thinking, like, how can a God of love like be a God of anger or a God of wrath? Well, let's just think about that and let's unpack that just a little bit, maybe with the culture today and then maybe on a personal level. Because Americans today are more angry, I don't know if you know this, maybe you've observed this, but these are the statistics, they're more angry today than they've like ever been. Did you know that? It's like there is an incubator of anger in America where three out of four Americans like have had it with the way that things are going in America. And they check the box, I'm angry about how things are going in America. And so uh, you look at the political landscape there. Now people are way, way, way more angry now than like they've ever been. And so you look, and uh, I don't want to get uh, tangential here, but I could and I'm going to resist doing that. And so right now the world is filled with anger. The world is filled with wrath. People are boiling over with wrath. And you've seen it like me, all the picketing, all the protesting, all the looting, all the rioting against anyone and everything that doesn't agree with me. Mobs creating total chaos. This is the landscape that we have seen in America here. And wrath is what happens when people don't feel like things are going right, like when everything is going wrong. And so we look at that and we see that, and here's my question. All the other people there, they're expressing anger and their wrath over how things are going, but God can't do the same. So God can't do the same. Like on a personal level here, uh, there are times when you, you have anger and it comes to its fullest expression, and sometimes it, it, it's not always negative. Sometimes it's right and healthy thing to do. And it's saying that God shows his anger from heaven. In other words, God is not like passively hanging back, just forever going to look at planet Earth. No, he's not like some stoic sovereign in the sky there. He's not just a, a mechanical maker devote devoid of feelings. No, he's not like a robotic uh, ruler in the heavenlies. No, God is a God who feels anger and wrath just like we do. Think about it. Like, I've had children. Some of you, you have children. Uh, and you know what it's like to raise children. So I'm just going to use this example. But I had three sons. They're all grown now. But when they were growing up, I was very protective of them. I was very protective. And if I saw somebody that looked a little sketchy, man, I was over-the-top protective. I never saw a pedophile that I was aware of, but had I seen one because I love them and I want to protect them, oh, you know if things got even a little bit dicey, 
the wrath of Rod Collins would have come to its fullest expression in protecting my three sons. How many people know what I'm talking about? And so God is like this. He's the same way about his children. So to question the wrath of God, like why would we question the wrath of God who hates sin because he knows what it does to us because of the ruination and the wreckage that it brings to humanity? He realizes how we are going to get uh, self-destructive in our behavior. So God, knowing that and seeing that and understanding humanity and how we're wired, there is divine wrath there. So God shows his anger. It says, shows his anger from heaven against all unrighteousness and wicked sinfulness because he wouldn't be God if he didn't feel that way. But yet, here's what you need to know about God's anger and God's wrath. The anger of God is perfect. It is holy. It's loving. It's just. It's not like us that can be erratic and out of control and all that. No, this is a divine anger, a divine wrath here, which is measured, which is slow, which is consistent, which is holy, which is right. And so that is God's wrath. And so the Apostle Paul explains why the wrath of God is revealed here. Here it is. It's against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Well, what is that talking about? Well, ungodliness has to do with a vertical us and God. Unrighteousness has to do with kind of one another, sort of on the horizontal plane there. Paul doesn't say against some unrighteousness or against a little unrighteousness, but he says against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness here. So ungodliness is when we sin against God when we do wrong is, and and this is really where the story of man's decline begins, where he's just blowing off, I don't have anything to do with God, I begin to retract from God and drift away from God, and to stay out of my life, God, and that's the posture it's talking about here, and then that also comes to expression in how we conduct ourselves with one another, what is is called here unrighteousness, where we will sin against one another by our conduct, I want to do my own way. I want, to have, I want to do my own thing. And so Paul continues, part of the problem is this. They suppress the truth. And so people, many of their story before Christ intersects with their life, their story is they suppress the truth. Well, what is, what's the problem with suppressing the truth? When you know right, before, right and wrong, when you know uh, uh, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, an innate sense of that, then you can suppress that. You can suppress uh, the existence of God. You can suppress uh, and submerge an accountability before Almighty God. And so it's knowing, though, that eventually it's going to surface again, but you keep trying to hold that down and suppress that. And so then the media gets in there, and the media encourages the suppressing of truth uh, with all the censoring of truth today with all the social media, media bias and hashtags and movements and protests and all that, suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth in so many ways uh, that I have to withhold myself from talking about that, but you know what I'm talking about. And so there is much suppression of truth in culture today, much suppression on individual level. People don't want to know God's truth. And so here's the good news, though. Here's the good news to that story, because we read in Romans, Five, it's on the screen there, verse 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. 
And so though it's talking about God's anger, though it's talking about the wrath of God, it says this, there is hope for humanity, and that is Jesus Christ, that we are made right with God by his blood shed upon the cross, and we have been saved from the wrath that is through him. In other words, the wrath of God, we're saved from the wrath of God through the grace of God of what Christ did on the cross. I get it, it's a lot to get your mind around. But when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, he suffered then for the wrath of God that was really intended for us had it not been for Christ. And so the death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God, satisfies the anger of God. And as a result, because of what Jesus has done, friends, there is not one drop, what not one molecule of God's wrath that will ever visit you because of Jesus Christ. This, friends, is the gospel. It's good news. So that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation at all, like none to those that are in Christ Jesus. And so because divine anger has been satisfied because Jesus, he paid it all. I remember one time I saw a little fourth grader and uh, here's, a, here's the brilliance of the theology of a fourth grader. And he said, God is like McDonald's. There was something on McDonald's, okay? It says, God is like McDonald's. He's done it all for you. Isn't that great? He's done it all for you. <laughs> and so now, continuing here in verse 19, we're this is God revealing himself in creation. Watch, it says this. So they know the truth about God. And how do they know the truth? Well, a couple of ways. Because he's made it obvious to them. Well, how has he made it obvious to them? Well, one is made it innately obvious to us. And so secondly, though, in the creation, it is obvious. You see the handiwork of God in creation. The Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They're creating, declaring the existence of God. And so God is always revealing himself in creation there, revealing who he is. It's like his own divine self-disclosure. It's like God making it obvious to all people. The fact of God's existence then is not hidden from the human race. It's clearly seen in all of creation. So continuing in verse 20 about God revealing himself in creation, it says this, verse 20 on the screens. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, though everything through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Again, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they can clearly see that God is real, that God exists. And so from the beginning of the world, this has been the reality that the existence of God is clearly evident. So you think about the games that people play, the games in trying to explain away God, and only suppressing what they're doing is they're trying to suppress the truth about him. But the truth is clearly seen in creation. Just like, for example, uh, some of you like to paint. Okay, When you paint, they reveal something of the painter. I know we've got at least one architect in the house, when the architect does drawings, it reveals something about the architect. And so even when you write your name, it reveals something about you. Well, the Bible is saying that 
the creation is revealing something about the creator. And part of that is his eternal power. And how is that? You see his eternal power when you look at the vast oceans of the, of the water. You see how God crafted the mountains. The Bible says that he measures the heavens with his span. Uh, you see the sun, the moon, the stars. You see God has flung it all into existence. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It literally means in the Hebrew language, God bara. That means created out of nothingness. He spoke it into existence. Didn't create from pre-existing things, but spoke it all into existence. So God then, is his, his person is revealed in the creation. So ultimately, here is the conclusion of mankind's story. You don't have any excuse concerning the existence of God. Everyone knows that God exists. Helen Keller said, before she was able to communicate, the brilliant Helen Keller, she said, I always knew before I ever heard, before I could ever communicate, I always knew there was a God. That was her story. And so verse 21 says this. Now the rejection of truth about God. We had the revealing of God. Now here's continuing the story. God reveals himself. But even though God reveals himself, the story here is telling us that people say, no, I want nothing to do with you, and they reject God. So yes, they knew God, and yet they wouldn't worship him as God and even give him thanks. And they began to think up, look what happens here, friends. Look what happens. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God is like. And as a result, their minds, look at what happens when you reject God. Your minds become dark, and your mind becomes confused about God. And so as soon as somebody says, yeah, I'm going to suppress the truth. Yeah, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to ignore the fact that there's a God, and I don't want to follow him or his ways. And I'm going to remove God from my conscience. The Bible says here's what happens. Your heart gets dark. My heart gets dark. It says their minds became dark. Their foolish heart is, is, a, is darkened here. And so when you reject the truth, it's a, it's a sober, sobering reality here that it has, watch friends, a devastating impact on your thinking. Who's going to tell you this, by the way, besides God himself? And so it has a devastating impact on your thinking here that rejecting the light, what it does is it pushes you toward darkness when you reject God's light. So that's why the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, it says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so uh, they became fools. So they're incapable then, watch, of sound thinking about the ultimate issues of life. Like, well, who really am I? And what is life about? And what is my purpose? And, and how am I to live? You become dark in all that when you reject God. And so you see here, there's a revealing of God. Uh, people reject that. Then the last thing happens, they replace God. God with something else. Look at verse 23. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living, everlasting God, they substitute God with idols. They worshiped idols made to look like people and idols and animals and reptiles. And so they make things not in God's image, but in their, uh, their own image or the image of what God has created, not the creator. And so today... We have this in live full color. You have the 
the Cardinals, you have the Seahawks. Come on, somebody, you got the Lions and the Bears, and people are worshiping uh, their teams. You know, they get so fired up and raise their hands and pump fists and all, and then they come to church, and it's a different story. But, but how often is, is this repeated in the human race? You have a history here of culture. We're given a history of, of a human society and nations, and it starts with the opportunity then to know God. Everybody has that opportunity. starts with a revealing, a revelation of God, followed by the often repeat story of rejecting the truth, and now here's what happens. This is shocking, friends, the shocking reality of what happens. Verse 24, it says, so now God has a response, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, and as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. So in many translations, it reads this way. It reads this way. And God gave them over. And then it says again in verse 26, and God gave them over. And then a third time, just so that we don't miss it, and God gave them over. And God is abandoning them to what they are lusting after. And so this is not God merely permitting them to do whatever they want. God is saying like, oh, okay, so that's what you want. That's what you are desiring and passionate about. Okay, then I'm going to give you a little push in that direction. I'm going to give you a little shove in the direction that you want to go. And I'm going to send you, after God dealing and uh, trying to uh, call a person to himself, then time after time being rejected, God says, okay, then that's the way that you want to go. That's the way that you can go. And so God gave them over to what they were pursuing. So interestingly, in rapid fire succession, just so that we don't miss it, one, two, three times, verse 24, 26, 28, God gave them over. And here's what they did. Here's why God gave them over, verse 25. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. This is the story of humanity, who is worthy of eternal praise. So they rejected the knowledge of God. And what happens when you do that? See, the heart, we, we were born to worship. And so if we don't worship God, we're just going to fill that with worshiping other things. It's reality here. Our hearts were created to want to worship God, and if we don't do that, they're going to want to substitute something else in God's place. So they worshiped and served then created things. So when we take our eyes off, friends, worshiping the true and the living God, we tend then, when we don't do that, we don't do that, then we look to worship the created things that are out there. And so if you take out the person of God in your life, and out of national life, out of family life, then you're going to worship, fill in the blank, tell me what you think. Are you going to worship your possessions? Maybe you worship your career. Maybe you worship, I don't know, your pets. I'm just, don't anybody get upset about that. That could happen in the Collins house. Uh, you worship your spouse. We have gray cat and white cat, and I think sometimes they actually worship my wife, but I can say that because she's not here. But anyway, next service I won't say that. But you worship maybe your spouse. You worship your children. You worship your salary. 
You worship your zip code. You worship your hobbies. A student can worship your GPA, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. You can worship your intellect. You can worship academia. You can worship your image. You can worship stuff. You can worship your lifestyle. You can worship yourself. You can worship your reputation. You get the idea. I think I thoroughly beat that into the ground. And so often then what we worship, uh, sometimes, uh, often, sometimes they're good things. Those are not necessarily bad things. Those are going to be very good things. But they're not intended to be the God thing, the preeminent thing, the everything. And when you take the side things and make them the everything, now you're entering into what the Bible calls idolatry, and you're worshiping something other than God. And here then uh, is what happens to the man or woman who goes down this road. Here's what can happen to them, verse 26. And this is why God abandoned them. And in some cases, to their shameful desires. Specifically, here's one. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And then the men having the normal sexual relations with women burned in their lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. So what it's talking about, and now remember, I'm hitting the reset button because I realize not a lot of people are telling us this, but I'm telling what has been told. These are God's thoughts. We're getting back to the creator, getting back to the originator of our creator and what he thinks here. And so the Bible, though, is not an old book. The Bible is a timeless book. And so what it says is very timely. This is very timely for the time in which we live. The Bible says in Genesis, right up front there, and God created them, male and female, he created them. Friends, there's not an option three, four, and five. There is male and there is female. And so it used to be, before it became mainline, uh, mainline uh, thought, is that it used to be that when you talked about sexuality, that sex in, an, in, a, in a recent era, not that long ago, was biological. And you looked at the deoxyribonucleic acid, the DNA of an individual, and they had sex chromosomes then, and you realized that's how you were created, male and female, and sex was determined at your birth, right? At your birth. Remember the day that they put the girls in pink and the boys in blue and all that. And so, uh, but when you look at them physically, their sex then, their biological sex then determined their gender, and that was fixed. And today it is no longer how you were made, male and female, he created them, but it is how now I feel. So however I feel, I come in here today and I say, well, I feel like I'm a young Asian woman. You would say, Rod, you are suppressing the truth. You're suppressing the truth a little bit, friend. But I come in and this is how I feel. I feel like I'm a young Asian woman, and that is where culture is at today. And so it's how you feel. And so that's why people can say things like, well, um, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. That's how I feel here. God made me this way, and he, but he made me wrong. God made me the wrong sex, and I've been closeted, and so I'm going to come out. Uh, and so, and I get that, and that's cultural teaching, but I just want to talk about what God said. 
and uh, renew our minds to that. Because God said mail, like this novel concept, friends, this novel out there concept, this male and female. In fact, the Bible would have the audacity to say things like 1 Corinthians 16, 3, act like men. Imagine that God would say that to men, to not to be effeminate and all that, but act like men. That's another message for another time, and I can't wait to do it. But, but today, there's this difference between what God says in his word and what the world is saying, completely at odds with one another. And here's what I'm telling you, is that the Bible is God's word. It's, it's the only thing out there, friends, the, that, that will oppose, will oppose uh, the gender and sexual and marital revolution. It's the only thing that is going to say no. Everything everyone else is going to say yes, and it's the word of God. Only the word of God is going to say that sex is male and female, and that gender is fixed and it doesn't change. And there is masculine, and there is feminine, and there is. Uh, uh, and this is what the scripture says. And I know that I some of you guys talk, that guy up there, he's like, he's like talking crazy, but this is what God has said: that you are either born female, your gender is feminine, and you're attracted to males, and the opposite is true. But mainstream media. We all know we're saying that the world, no, no, the world is saying that no, sex is not male and female. It's fluid. It is whatever, whatever gender, whatever, you wake up, that's what you can be there. And you are not male and female. And your sex can just change all over the place on this intersex spectrum. And so there's no fixation of your sex. It's this unfixated spectrum based on how you feel. And this is what culture says that, Sexuality is fluid, unfixed on a spectrum uh, that can constantly shift. So here's what I'm telling you. Like, you need to decide, like, what do you want to believe? You have what God has said. You have what the world has said there. And you and I need to decide, like, what side you're going to side with here. And uh, does it mean that you can't have relationships and, uh, with people that are vehemently opposed to your opinion? but you can also hold the ground of what Scripture has said here. So friends, here's how I'm concluding the matter, is that this text in Romans 1 tells us not just what happened in the Roman Empire, but what is happening in the American Empire. The book is timeless, and it is timely. And that's why it is telling us the truth. And so uh, this is what the Scripture says about the subject uh, we're running out of time, and so I'm going to conclude here, but I'm going to continue next week and continue to unpack this. And so I get it. I get it that uh, culture says one thing, but friends, remember what I started with? Romans chapter 12, that we need to let our minds be renewed and not be squeezed into the world's mold of how to think, how to act, how to post, but let your minds be renewed by God's word. And so let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word. It's a, a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And thank you, Lord, for a world that is so utterly confused that Romans 1 speaks to us so clearly. We thank you, Father, for your word that comes to us with clarity and conviction and power and that we can hear the voice of God through the word of God and understand the story of mankind. We can understand that uh, uh, the track uh, that many people, the path that many people are on. We thank you, Father, for your grace of um, confronting us with the truth. 
And when we recognize that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the power that can, tra- to, can transform anyone or anything beginning with us. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, if you want to stand to your feet, stand to your feet. And um, one of the things that we do, one of the things that we do is uh, I give a final blessing. I give a final blessing. And uh, we want church to be an experience where, yes, you worship, you engage uh, God through uh, the singing of song, and then you also uh, engage him hearing his voice through his word. But we want it to be more than that. We're actually that you leave with a sense of God's blessing over your life. So that's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. If you're here for the first time, if you want to just put yourself in a position to receive God's blessing, receive his blessing. You may bow your head. You may lift your hands. You may close your eyes. You may keep your eyes open. Just prepare yourself to receive his blessing. And Father, thank you that you're infinitely more marvelous than we could ever know. And as we hold out our empty hands, we acknowledge that we need you, Almighty God, to fill them. That you are the only one that can fill the gaps, the voids. You're the only one that can go where you can go and do what you can do in our lives. And Father, I pray this week that your children would experience your grace, that your mercy would be new every morning that you would watch over them, that you would keep them, that you, O God, would cause your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them, that you, God, would stir their hearts with hope, that you would be their strength, that you would be their peace. And I ask that you would do this and that you would do more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. God bless you, friends, and see you next week.